we shall get the party started here. Uh, first, there's some congratulations in order. You have made it to the more exciting part of this whole series. <laughs> we have uh, made it through five weeks of hermeneutics, um, which again, I stand by that phrase that there is not a subject that is more vital and less boring than hermeneutics. Uh, it is simultaneously both of those things. Uh, but now we uh, are getting into the real theological meat of this whole series, examining the covenants. But going through the hermeneutic was essential. To, it was just, you had to do that first, right? You can't just jump in and start saying, this is what this passage means without talking about how we interpret the Bible. And so uh, we're now going to uh, look over, give an overview of God's program by examining the covenants of the Bible. In a very real sense, the covenants that are found in the Old Testament leading into the New Testament are like the, the backbone of what God is doing in the world, what, uh, God's program. And so that's why it's important for us to examine covenants. But there is just like one more, I don't know, maybe it's boring, maybe not, uh, thing that we have to do before we jump into the first covenant we're going to examine, which is the Abrahamic covenant. And that is, we have to define what the covenant is. We kind of have to have our, our minds wrapped around this. What on earth is a covenant and why is it even in the Bible in the first place? Okay, because we can jump in and start throwing terms around, but if we don't know why covenants are happening, then that's not exactly beneficial now, is it? So, um, let's, uh, let's start by answering this question generally. What is the purpose of a covenant? And we'll just talk among humans, okay? Man to man, woman to woman, man to woman, woman to man. What is the purpose of a covenant, just generally speaking? Why do they exist? Okay. Okay, good. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah, so maybe the, I don't know, most pertinent covenant that we're familiar with is a marriage covenant, right? Which starts at the wedding ceremony, the, there are witnesses there to testify. These two have entered into a covenant with one another. And of course, the agreement that they're entering into is what in a marriage? What, what agreement is being entered into there? Who, who can remember the vows, right? Uh, but yeah, these are good answers. I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, so we're making oaths, aren't we? In, in a marriage ceremony or a wedding ceremony, entering into a marriage, you're making an oath to one another, and you're binding yourself to certain commitments. And as a Christian, uh, you, you have this sense of, till death do us part. What, jo- what God has joined together, let no man separate. That's what Jesus said, right? What God has joined together, let no man separate. And so you enter into it with that idea. Uh, What about between God and humans? What is a covenant? Hmm. Well, that could have something to do with it, but let's just go generally speaking, no matter where we are in the context of history. What is God doing making covenants with humans? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Anybody have anything to add to that? Mm-hmm. Yep. 
They come together and agree to terms. And, con- and contracts and covenants do exist all over in our world, don't they? Uh, those of you who rent, you've got a contract. You've got some sort of agreement that you have to keep up. Um, <laughs> lately, there's been some headlines coming out of Jacksonville, Florida. First Baptist Jacksonville added to their covenant membership that members of that church had to agree to uh, a statement on biblical sexuality. And so the secular news outlets were having a heyday with that. You can't make people agree to say that being homosexual is sin. Well, really, uh, we are a Christian church, and this has been our position for thousands of years, but okay, yeah, (laughs) all right. Uh, But it's a part of that covenant. It's part of that agreement. We just have these in place all the time. How often do you agree to terms and conditions that you don't even read? It's almost like it's set up that way, right? I mean, like, hey, you have to agree to this thing, and it's going to take you the better part of a month to read through it, but uh, you can't use our services until you check that little box on the computer screen or the phone screen, whatever it is. So we are just involved in covenants, contracts, commitments, obligations all the time. That's just a, a real part of what we do. And so as we start thinking about how to define covenant, I'm going to give you like a, a double O word. Covenants are oath obligations. Oath obligations. And a lot of times it comes with uh, some sort of punishment if the oath is broken, doesn't it? Again, going back to uh, those of you who are renting or have rented before, you know about that whole deposit situation. The first apartment that we had when we were here in uh, Utah, I was pretty upset when we didn't get our deposit back because I read through, you know, what you had to do to get your deposit back, and I thought I did it pretty well. But apparently normal wear and tear counted as, like, a reason he could take away my deposit. Uh, But there are oath obligations that are involved where if you don't uphold uphold your side of the deal, oftentimes there will be some sort of a punishment or discipline. For covenants to make sense, we have to have a literal, normal hermeneutic too, don't we? Wouldn't you say so? How would you like it, those of you who are married, how would you like it if your spouse said to you, well, the wedding vows, if you look at that in a spiritual sense or an allegorical sense, I could run around and be with other people. Whenever I said I was, you know, giving my love to you, I didn't mean like, you know, all my love. When I said that I was going to be with you till death do us part, I mean, that I'll be around. Okay, there, there needs to be a literal hermeneutic with these for them to work, don't they? Uh, you better believe that those who are holding you to a contract that you've signed expect you to read the words with a literal hermeneutic. That you wouldn't go in there and think, well, I mean, he doesn't really mean what he says in this contract. No, no, you have to have a literal hermeneutic. So I think that's part of it with a literal, normal hermeneutic. And hermeneutic is what? Well, that's a, not a word we use all the time, but what does that mean, hermeneutic? Yeah, yeah, it's a method of interpretation. That's all that is. So the way that you interpret the words. So as we think about what covenants are, they are oath obligations, and they must mean what they say in all of life. And I don't think there's any exception for when God makes a covenant with men. In fact, I would say if there's ever a time to say covenants really, really, really mean what they say 100, 1,000%, exhaustively, comprehensively, it's when God makes the covenant. Okay? Someone look up John 3.33 with me. 
John 3.33. And this is, I think, at the heart of this whole conversation about why we believe God means what He says, especially as we consider the covenants. Uh, John 3.33, if you want to give it a little more context, you can. Maybe, uh, let's do 31 to 33. Who can read that for us? Okay, Rex, go ahead. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but not one, ex- but no one accepts, accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. Okay, so according to verse 33, the one who receives... Jesus, the testimony of Jesus, has set his seal to what? That God is what? True. So as Christians, we are testifying that God is true. God is a God of truth. Uh, Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in your word for your word is truth. So we don't believe that God is in the business of bait and switch, is he? You guys were singing earlier like you don't believe that. You were singing like we have a real hope, right? That we have a real salvation, that we have a real hope of heaven. Uh, that's the reason why we're here. We believe we're God's people. That We don't believe that uh, God's going to take away His promises from us tomorrow, but that He's given us a certain, sure foundation and hope, all right? And so um, when we think about covenants, we must think about them as meaning what they say. They are oath obligations that mean what they say. Now, uh, let's look at another example from Scripture, this time of a human-to-human covenant. Joshua chapter 9, maybe you'll remember this because we covered it in the sermon series not that long ago. Joshua chapter 9 is where the uh, (laughs) sons of Israel were dealing with the Gibeonites. Someone remember what the Gibeonites did? What were the Gibeonites doing to the Israelites? Yeah, deceivers. They uh, said they were from where? Yeah, just a far off country, right? When really they were right there in the land. And the Israelites were told not to make a covenant, not to make an oath obligation with who? Yeah, anyone in the land. And so these people come along as deceivers and say, well, we're not from here, we're from far away. So make an oath that you won't hurt us and we can live with you and everything will be okay. Well, let's pick it up at verse 18, and uh, this is after the Israelites found out, oh, they're actually your neighbors, okay? Someone read verses 18 to 20 of Joshua 9. Who's got it? Okay. 18 to 20. <laughs> All right, the oath or the covenant. Um, the promise. They made an oath obligation. It was a covenant they should not have made, but they made it. And there was a literal normal hermeneutic at play here. Notice how the sons of Israel, the, yeah, the sons of Israel, they couldn't say here, well, we didn't really mean that. There was no wiggling out. They made their promise. They entered into this covenant and they had to keep their word. 
There was an understanding by both parties about what was said, and it had to be upheld. It was an oath obligation that they had made, and the words had meaning, didn't they? And because the words had meaning, there were ramifications, weren't there? Now the Gibeonites stuck around, and they were thorns in the sides of the Israelites. It's an interesting study to trace the Gibeonites with the Israelites throughout history. But this was a clear instance of an oath obligation with a literal normal hermeneutic. Okay, now as we think about God making covenants some more, I want to really press you on this and see what kind of answers we can get here. God is not a man, right? Well, we got one non-Mormon in the room. Uh, God is not a man. We all agree. Okay. Uh, in fact, there's a Bible verse that says, God is not a man that he should lie. Does God ever lie? Is God totally true, totally faithful in all things? Is his yes, yes, and his no, no? Then tell me why he enters into covenants. Now, this is the, the, like the million-dollar question here, isn't it? Okay, very, very good answer. Now, tell me what the benefit is for us. Good, okay. What about the unconditional covenants, though? Um, now, obviously, you know, the law of Moses, that was a major aspect of a, a conditional covenant. And God was very detailed about, here's your end of the deal, Israel. But what about the unconditional covenants, like our salvation. Okay, good. And he's almost like highlighting here, isn't he? Because he could just say it. Couldn't God just say it? Couldn't he say like, well, this is what's going to happen. That's it. But there are certain times in history, like if we had uh, just a timeline up here where you could put dots on the timeline, there are certain moments where God enters in and he uses stronger language than just saying, this is what's going to happen. He comes along and says, I am obligating myself by an oath to you, man. And this is pretty weighty stuff. You can't take this stuff for granted because God doesn't have to do this. God could just say, here's what it is. But he highlights certain promises. He like takes the brightest floodlight you've ever seen and he shines it on this promise and he says, anchor yourself to this. This is really, really important in the outworking of history. That's what the covenants are that God makes. He uses covenant language for our benefit. And it's not like when he, when he starts talking about covenants, now he finally means what he says. He means what he says all along. Okay? But he's, he's amplifying the moment. He's turning up the speaker in this moment and saying, pay attention. So that's why a study of the covenants is so important. And now I want to uh, share a video It'll be uh, about seven to eight minutes, and I gotta, I'll keep talking to you as I walk. Uh, <laughs> this is a, a guy who's becoming a friend of mine. He's British. He lives in California. His name is uh, Paul Henneberry, and he um, has a lot of good work on the covenants. In fact, he's written a pretty big volume on the biblical covenants. And here in this clip, he's going to explain Uh, some more about why God enters into covenants with us. All right. Now, with that interpretation of of covenant, why on earth would God enter into a covenant? After all, his yes is yes, his no is no. I mean, he's completely trustworthy. He doesn't have to um, swear solemnly before somebody else in order for him to be believed. 
So why does he do that? Well, clearly, he does it for us because of our propensity not to believe what he says. In other words, a divine covenant is an encouragement to faith in God. Uh, God could just say, look, to Noah, I'm going to bring a massive flood upon the earth. And uh, after that's happened, he can say to Noah, okay, I'm never again going to do that. And that should be good enough for Noah, and that should be good enough for us. But instead, what he does is uh, after the flood and after Noah has made that sacrifice to God, God swears a covenant that he's never again going to bring uh, a flood, a deluge upon the earth. Now, let me ask you a question here. Do you believe God is going to bring a worldwide watery flood upon this earth? And if not, why not? I mean, if you believe, for example, that uh, you should use typological interpretation, or if you believe that you should spiritualize much of the Old Testament, why don't you spiritualize the Noahic covenant? You see, uh, the covenants have got to mean what they say, don't they? And everybody believes the Noahic covenant means what it says. So why did God make that covenant? Why did God make that covenant with, uh, with Abraham and, and swear that he was going to give him the land of Canaan in perpetuity? Uh, why did he make that covenant with David, saying that he would have always have a man to sit on the throne of David? On earth, by the way, not in heaven. Well, it's so that his people would have a solemn word from God that they knew, even in the hardest times, even in the most difficult times, they knew they could believe it. And it's the same for us in the church. We have the new covenant made with us. It's made in Christ's blood. When Christ initiated it, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And he said that to the disciples. And according to Ephesians 2.20, the disciples are the foundation of the New Testament church. That's us. That means that the apostle Paul later on in 1 Corinthians 11 has no problem whatsoever in quoting those words of uh, initiation uh, and augmentation uh, from the, uh, the uh, initial setting up of that covenant in Luke 22 and giving it to the church. The blood of the new covenant is the blood that we are sanctified with. That means that we're within that new covenant. Okay, so uh, that means that we're covered with the blood of Christ and we can never be uncovered by the blood of Christ because it's covenanted to us and we are to believe it. So that's a wonderful promise that we've been given uh, that encourages our faith in the fact that despite our ongoing depravity, despite us continually having problems with obedience to God and, and being what God wants us to be, we can hold on to the fact that through grace, God means what he says. And he's made a covenant with us uh, that gives us hope in the face of uh, our own disobedience. So what is a covenant then? What is a divine covenant? Basically, it's this. It's an amplification of God's word. God could just say, look, I'm going to um, give you Abraham. I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to uh, give you uh, a seed through Sarah. And Abraham would have had enough there to just believe it. But instead, God makes a solemn oath to do it. He puts himself according to Hebrews chapter 6, under that solemn oath in order to be believed. 
we have a propensity not to believe, and so a covenant is for us to, it's basically shouting at us saying, hey, God means what he says here. You can trust this. You can absolutely believe this literally. Now, if that's the case, and it is the case, then covenants cannot undergo any kind of transformation in their meaning. They are made with who they're made with. They mean what they say in the terms of the covenant, and God holds himself, and um, if they're made as uh, bilateral, holds Israel, for example, in the sense of uh, the Mosaic covenant, literally to what they've sworn to. Now, what does that mean? What are the implications of that? Well, they're actually huge because covenants are not made over small things. Covenants are made about very big things. For example, the nationhood of Israel, the land of Israel, the priesthood of Israel, uh, the um, priority of Israel over the nations. These are all covenantally uh, formed and pledged promises of God. The same with salvation in Christ. That is a covenantally pledged promise that we have. These are not small things. Now, what does that mean? It means this, that no interpretation of the rest of the Bible can come into conflict with what those covenants clearly teach. So if you have an interpretation that collides with a covenant that God has made, then your interpretation is wrong and you need to change it and get it in line with what those covenants promise to do. So is that making sense to you, tracking along there? He's just a British guy enjoying his cup of tea, taking it easy. <laughs> he was in no hurry, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> which is great. Yeah, we need more of that. Um, but I, that's the view I'm taking. You know, God, is, God means what he says, and you can't transform, reverse, undo, sneak in, anything. No tampering with the covenants whatsoever, all right? Um, now, before we get into the Abrahamic covenant and the context for the Abrahamic covenant, there's just one more thing I want to say, okay? Uh, perhaps you've noticed I have this phrase up here. God's program is about establishing His... Well, how would you finish that sentence? I'm curious. It, it's not like there's one right answer, but there is one that's better than the others. <laughs> okay, that's very close. Yep. It's also very close. And I probably spooked you all from giving an answer. His kingdom. Okay, his kingdom. <laughs> okay, like, where's this all going? You know, where, where's this world going? Well, don't we believe that one day God's going to have a perfect kingdom in place? That there'll be no more sin. Like, no, no matter what view anybody takes of how we get there, the final place is God is establishing his kingdom, isn't he? And there'll be no question about who's in charge. And his will and his authority will be perfectly seen and exercised just in, for eternity. Um, his program is all about establishing his kingdom where all people, all tribes, all tongues, all nations submit to him. Philippians 2 gives us a, a beautiful picture of this where it talks about uh, the name of Jesus. You know what it says there at the end of that amazing passage talking about Jesus emptied himself so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's where this is all headed. 
where there will just be no doubt about who is king. And if we want to uh, look at the end of our Bibles, I'll just give you the references. You've got Revelation 5.11 and Revelation 22.3. I'm on my phone tonight, so I can look them up really fast. But Revelation 5.11 and following, it talks about how you have the one sitting on the throne and the Lamb, and to them be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. When it comes to their kingdom, there will be no end. Uh, And we get that again at the very last chapter of the book. So there are many great themes and uh, just tracks that we could take through Scripture, but they're all just aspects of the grand theme, which is God establishing His kingdom. So you could follow the promises of God throughout Scripture. That's a great theme to follow. You could uh, track holiness throughout Scripture, God's holiness and His call for His people to be holy. Salvation is a huge theme in Scripture, isn't it? Uh, The law of God, the people of God, even the covenants. All of these things are great themes to trace throughout Scripture, but they are all subsets of the main theme, or they're all aspects of the main theme, which is God establishing His program or His kingdom. That's the overarching theme of His program. All other items are subsets of the big goal, okay? So I wanted to get that out there too. Any thoughts or questions at this juncture before we get into Genesis for the rest of the evening? We good? Philippians 2, that would be like, yeah, I mean, it's like, where do you, you start in Philippians 1, 1, and then, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, that was 2, 2, yeah, 11, right, right about there. Other thoughts or questions? We good? All right, let's go back to Genesis. All the way back to Genesis. It's in the Old Testament. <laughs> yes. Hey, when I asked if God was a man earlier, I got one reply. So I don't know what I'm dealing with tonight. <clears throat> so before we get into the... Uh, into the nitty-gritty of the Abrahamic covenant, we need to set the stage, the context of the Abrahamic covenant. So that's what we're looking at now. Um, let's go to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Very foundational verses. In fact, uh, let's do 26 to 28. Who can read Genesis 1, 26 to 28? Who's got that? Go ahead. Yeah. So that passage is really important for a variety of reasons, Uh, but I want you to see in this passage the task that was set before Adam. God creates male, female, amazing thing, and He doesn't just say, free play, (laughs) Do, do whatever you want, off you go. He gives them a task, doesn't He? And if you were to summarize this task, what, what's the task of mankind at this point in human history? Good, yeah, I heard both the words. You got basically subdue and rule, okay? Which is really a reflection of kingship, isn't it? Isn't that what kings do? Don't kings subdue and exercise rulership? Um, So Adam was essentially a little K king in service of the capital K king. He was to be K 
king of the world <laughs> and to subdue it and rule it. Now, that lasted just a matter of minutes. We don't know how many minutes, but it was a matter of minutes. Uh, it wasn't a matter of years. I'm quite confident of that. And uh, he failed. Now, we don't need to go into detail about how he failed. I know this group tonight knows that God is not a man and also knows what happened with Adam and Eve. Uh, how, how did Adam and Eve fail in this endeavor to subdue and rule the earth? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he, he puts their whole doctrinal statement, not doctrinal statement, uh, their whole you know, list of commands on a sticky note and says, uh, here, here's what you're supposed to obey, and they, they failed, okay? So they, um, yeah, that's right. Um, I'll just put the fruit, right? The fruit. We know what happened. They partook of the fruit. Now, what was at the heart of their desire to partake of the fruit? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, the serpent comes along and entices them with this idea that they can be high and mighty and lifted up. You'll be like God. That's why he doesn't want you to do it, because you'll be like God which was, incidentally, Satan's first sin, right, was self-exaltation. I will be like the Most High. Then he comes along and whispers in her ear, and she gives to her husband who was with her. So uh, there was immediate judgment in Genesis 3. Uh, Let's just go to Genesis 3 real quick. We'll touch on it. The immediate judgment was found in the cursing that came, where he cursed the serpent, and the woman, and the man. But let's look at what was said to uh, the serpent and the woman, 14 through 16. Would someone read 3, 14 through 16? Okay. Okay. Well, there's a promise in there too, isn't there? It's not just a curse, but you'll you'll see uh, there are a few promises. But we have uh, 315 where the promise is about this seed who is to come. So hang on to that. But there's judgment issued here. And of course, Adam has issued uh, judgment. The curse is the ground by the sweat of your brow. You'll work. Work is going to be work. Okay, that sort of thing. Uh, But this all leads up to a much bigger judgment as sin increased in the world. And God was sorry he made man, Genesis 6 says. And what's that big judgment that follows that? The flood. Okay, so I'm not doing like real clean breaks here with judgments and stuff, but we know that this leads up to the flood. Okay, you could put the curse in there, um, but we're going we're gonna to jump to the flood. And when God flooded the earth, He did so in judgment that every living thing, uh, save, you know, some animals and eight human beings, was to undergo immediate judgment. They were to die. Because sin increased on the face of the earth. And uh, what does it say in Genesis 6? The thought of man, the contemplation of his heart, was only evil continually. Bad, bad, bad. Okay. And uh, it will be that bad again, won't it? Didn't Jesus say something about that? It'll be... Yes, yes, right. We are feeling the flames as it intensifies, perhaps. But yes, uh, it'll be like the days of Noah again. Okay, so now let's jump forward to, uh, to Noah's time. Okay, we're just setting up the context of the Abrahamic covenant here, so we're not hitting every verse of Genesis. But let's set up, or let's go all the way to uh, Noah. The flood has happened, okay? And Noah and his family are now to come off the boat, 
And uh, let's take a look at what's going on with them. Starting in chapter 6, just one verse in chapter 6, verse 18, God tells them before the flood what's going to happen, and then we'll jump to after the flood. So who can read 6.18 for us? Genesis 6.18. Going once. Oh, okay. Very good. Go ahead. Yep. All right. What is really, really significant about this communication from God to Noah is that this is the first time where covenant is mentioned in the Bible. The first mention in Genesis where you get the word covenant. And of course, we've been talking a lot about that, and we'll continue talking a lot about covenants. First time. And notice the future tense that this is in. God is letting Noah know what's going to happen with the flood and all of that, but He also gives him this. Afterwards, I'm going to establish a covenant with you. So now let's go to that moment. That's in chapter 9. So let's get on the other side of the flood here. We can skip over the waters rising, and let's look at uh, a longer section, verses 9 to 17. Would someone read Genesis 9, verses 9 to 17? Those of you who didn't want to read one verse, now it's nine verses. (laughs) 9 to 17, who's got it? Thank you. All right. So who's the maker of the covenant? Real easy questions here. Who's the maker of the covenant? God. Who's the recipient of the covenant? Land all the earth. Good. What's the substance of the covenant? What's, what's the content? What's the promise here? Good. Never again will there be a worldwide flood. And what's the timeline on that? How, how long is that promise good for? Good. No, no expiration date. Okay? So that's the way I want you to start thinking about covenants as you look at them. We don't approach these things willy-nilly. If this is God saying, pay attention to these words, well, we need to pay attention to the words okay, and figure out what's being said. Now, go back up if you're there in chapter 9. Go back up at the beginning of chapter 9. Uh, Noah is, is told that this is what's going on now before we get into the covenant talk. Whoever sheds man's blood, verse 6, by uh, his, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. But as for you, be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Uh, we see that basically Noah is given the same task that Adam was given, right? To uh, subdue and rule. And we also have this new thing called capital punishment inserted here. That was, that was never issued before this moment, which is just pretty interesting, isn't it? Uh, we have the first time that a covenant's made, and right before that, we have the first time we have capital punishment, and he's to uphold that, too. I'm just going to put cap pun. That is not a play on words about something you put on your head. That stands for capital punishment, okay? Uh, <clears throat> now, how did uh, Noah and his progeny do? Not well. Over the course of the next chapter or two, what happens that really indicates that they failed at this? There are a couple things you can point out. There's one really big thing, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah, you've got uh, the issue with Noah and his sons, that whole interesting story, right? Where you've got kind of fault all the way around there. What's the really big event that happens in chapter 11? Tower of Babel. 
And why did they make the tower according to the text? There's speculative reasons you can have, but it says in chapter 11 that they wanted to do what for their own name? Okay, let's turn over. Chapter 11, verse 4. So what you said, Stacy's right. They wanted to build a tower to reach into heaven. That's verse 4 of chapter 11. And then make a name for themselves to make their name great. And it's almost like we're seeing a theme here about failure. It's almost always man wanting to exalt himself, isn't it? Or a creature wanting to exalt himself to the status of creator. And so the failure, again, is self-exaltation and we could say the Tower of Babel incident. Okay. Now, what was the judgment that came from that? Yes. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> yes. Uh, Spanish is the curse. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry, Daniel. All right. So we have languages and being scattered, right? That's the judgment. And so you could look at this and, you know, we could kind of fixate on these elements and say these are outlining different dispensations, which to a degree I think that's true. Can you do it cleanly? No, I don't think you can. Uh, but you can at least see we've got different things happening here, right? We've got someone who comes along, in this case God made him, and he's been given a task, he failed, there's a judgment. There's someone else, God enters into a covenant even, and he's given a task, and he fails, and there's judgment. And so uh, you see this happening throughout human history. It's a part of God's program where people are given a task to do, and they fail, and there's a judgment. Um, this is the context, the immediate context, of when God enters into a covenant now with Abraham. And it's important for us to keep in mind, way back here in chapter 3, verse 15, the promise that was given after the initial failure, which was that the seed of the woman is going to come along and crush the head of the serpent. And I do think that from that moment forward, Adam's race was hanging on to that promise. And perhaps generation after generation, there was a curiosity about, is this the one? In fact, uh, Noah's name, it's going to slip my memory now, what his name means. Uh, bonus points if you know what his name means. <laughs> uh, here we go. It's 529, Genesis 529. Lamech named him Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord had cursed. I think perhaps even Lamech had an expectation that maybe his son would be the one. This one's going to give us rest. That's a, that's a big expectation to put on a little guy, isn't it? Uh, is that what you said, Logan, when Colby was born? This is the one who's going to give us rest from all of our work. <laughs> that, is a, that is a lot of expectation. But I do think there was that expectation. And so um, now we come to Abraham, and let's go to uh, the end of chapter 11. So we're after the Tower of Babel and the scattering of the peoples. And let's look at how this whole thing gets kicked off with, with Abraham. Uh, 31 to chapter 12, verse 3. Who would read that for us? 1131 to 123. Okay, go ahead. No, oh, you're fine. Okay. 
Er. Yep. Okay, so it's it's pretty abrupt, isn't it? Um, we we could have backed up to twenty six of chapter eleven, but that's pretty much all the context you get about who Abram was and where he came from. It's just here's this guy, and God says you're the one. <laughs> Here we go, and uh, and I I kind of like that. You know, there's not a lot of speculation. It's just this is this is the guy that God chose. And it has to come down to God's gracious choice there. There was nothing about Abram that was desirable. The land he was from was a pagan land. He had a pagan background. It wasn't that he was seeking after God and he, you know, he knew of uh, what, what God really desired and he worked really hard and so God picked him. It was none of that. It was God saying, here we go. You're the guy. And here's what's going to happen. And how amazing that must have been to Abram's ear to hear from the one true God whom he did not know beforehand, and to hear not only that he is, and there are ramifications, you know, he's obligated to obey his creator, but to get this amazing promise that he is to go to a land so that he can be a great nation, be blessed, even bless the whole world. That's pretty startling, isn't it? That is is quite the, uh, the startling promise from God. And so what I think we got going on in the Abrahamic covenant, which gets expanded, uh, or more detailed, I should say, through the chapters that follow, is that the promise of the seed, the one who is to come, is going to crush the head of the serpent. We find out more about how that's going to happen. That initial promise that came right after the very first sin, the very first failure, the first promise that God gives of redemption here, we're just tracing that through history, and now we're going to get more details about how exactly that's going to happen. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. As we go through Scripture with progressive revelation in mind, if you remember progressive revelation is that Scripture builds upon itself, we get more details. And uh, this is you know, something that Adam didn't know. This is something that Noah didn't know that there was going to be a guy named Abram from the land of Ur. (laughs) Who knows what language he spoke? It's probably Spanish, right, Andy? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) And uh, and the Lord picks him and says, here we go. And uh, there's, we see a narrowing and a broadening of what God is doing in the world that we'll get into really next week. But as you look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, this is really before we get the covenant language, but God's making these promises here. Do you think this is conditional or unconditional? This is a very important decision you have to make at this intersection. Well, this is the fork in the road. You've got to go conditional or unconditional here, and that affects how you read what follows. So we've got a few votes for unconditional. We have a vote for conditional now. Okay. Okay. James says there is. All right. There's the issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God says, go. Yeah, you are to go. All right. So, what do we make of this? How do we process this? Oh, wow. <laughs> Okay. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. And we get that at chapter 15, so that'll come in a little bit. Yep. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, so that almost leads us into the conversation about like our own salvation too, doesn't it? Is your salvation conditional or unconditional? So you didn't have to believe, right? Okay. All right, so you can look at it, you can look at it from one angle and say, all right, there were conditions here, and if the conditions weren't met, then God was not obligated. Uh, I think you, you can look at it that way and say that. But you can also look at it another way here and say, well, God is saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, this is going to happen. And yes, Abram had to get up and go, but God's going to do it, right? So outside of Abram moving his legs for a bit, all of this was going to happen unconditionally. So we can at least say, okay, yes, Abram had to get up and go, but... All the blessing that is to come was not contingent on anything Abraham would do, right? Well, we don't have that language here, but we just have the command of God to go, right? And that, and there's there's no if, yeah, right. And and we can at least say too, if this is conditional, it's certainly conditional in a different sense than the law was conditional. The law was very clear with if then, if then. I mean, you go to the end of the Torah, Deuteronomy 27 through 29, and it's just extremely clear, if you disobey, this will happen. If you obey, this will happen. Okay. Now, God gives Abram a command. There's no doubt about that. Abram was to go. He was obligated to obey the Lord, and there's just no doubt about any of that. Yet, the promises God makes that uh, follow there, those aren't in a conditional setting. I think we can all agree there, right? God is saying, I am going to do this. Okay. And so, um, We'll get more detail as we go on, but it's important to figure out what you, what you think about this because it does affect stuff later on down the road. There are some who will say that the uh, Abrahamic covenant is actually totally conditional um, and uh, that later the law came along to define those conditions. I'm not going there. But you got to figure out what you think about that, okay? Other thoughts or questions on that item? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pride. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. That is totally, totally it. Pride is at the heart of. All of our failure. Especially after, I mean, how long it took him to build that thing and, and the trauma of going through a worldwide flood. Um, that's a traumatic experience. And then afterwards, you lose all the adrenaline. I mean, I don't, I don't know what he had to be thinking. Um, but uh, obviously, it just doesn't take man very long to go back to his own vomit, right? Like the dog. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, then that, that's an interesting observation. Yeah, because this is coming right off the heels of Tower of Babel. We're going to make our name great, and we're going to do it ourselves. And then God comes along and 
picks Abram and says, I'll make your name great. Yeah, yep. Tyler. So, um, yeah, that's an important point. There are some people who will say that God made a covenant with Adam. Now, uh, assuming that you trust me whenever I tell you that Genesis 6.18 is the first mention of a covenant in Genesis, uh, you know, which is the case, you can fact check me, how do you think someone gets to the place where they say, well, God actually entered into a covenant with Adam? There are a couple different paths they take, but can you imagine how someone would say that or why someone would say that? Okay, how do you get to a covenant? God making a covenant from there, though. Well, I don't think you do either, but... (laughs) They wouldn't have died. Yeah, without sin, there wouldn't be any death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so basically what you're saying and, and the main way they get there is just assuming. Like, the, yes, so it's, it's not said that you actually don't have any covenant language used at all in the first two chapters of Genesis, um, especially the word covenant uh, or oath or anything like that. But there's an assumption that, okay, Adam was in relationship with God and there were stipulations on his existence, like you were pointing out, Evelyn. Therefore, it must have been a covenant. That's the main way that people get there. Another way, and you can just jot this down, this reference, it's Hosea 6-7. Hosea 6-7, where um, God is here rebuking Ephraim and Judah. And he says, like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Now that's interesting. Like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. So some, and this is more of the minority position, will say, according to that verse, God made a covenant with Adam in the garden and he broke the covenant. The problem with that is that uh, we don't have that in the recorded history of the garden, like I was just saying. Also, um, the word Adam that's there can also just mean man. That's what the Hebrew word means. It also is the name of a a city. Uh, We see it in the book of Joshua, perhaps some other books. There's a city called Adam, okay? So it could have been talking about people in in the city. Um, And there were other people named Adam, okay? So uh, there's just a variety of issues there where you would have to kind of be out on a flimsy branch to say, see, this proves that God made a covenant in the garden with Adam. And, and you'd have to read into that what the covenant was, because we just don't have any details about what the covenant was that God made, okay? Um, say that again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and to me, you can say that and don't have to say that that's a covenant. That's just a, a reality, Right. Because God says things all throughout Scripture that are true, and He'll say, this is going to happen. If you do this, this will happen, um, without using covenant language. Uh, So the problem that happens when you say, here's a covenant, when there are no covenant details, is someone's got to provide the covenant details, right? And 
I'll go ahead and just let you in. Those who say that God made a covenant with Adam in the garden say that it was a covenant of works. That if you, to use our modern language, be a good person, uh, but basically keep the law, then you will live. In fact, traditionally, there aren't many who would write this today, but traditionally those who would say that said that God gave him the Ten Commandments. He was given the Ten Commandments. It's the, the summary of the law. And he was to keep his eternal life by works. That was the substance of the covenant. And if he broke that covenant, he would lose his eternal life. And he ate of the fruit and he lost his eternal life. Say that again. There you go. And Because th- that's the whole problem is if you say there's a covenant where there is no covenant, you're the one making up the details of the covenant. And that's why I can't go there. Yep. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yep. And well, we, we know uh, that's true about Jesus. John says so, right? Uh, but yeah, there's so much that we don't have recorded. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's exactly right. God doesn't leave things out so that we'll assume. He preserves things so that we'll pay attention to what He's preserved, right? And that's, that's our, our goal in this endeavor is to look at the covenants He's preserved and say, this is what He has said, and we stick to that. And when it comes to speculating or assuming outside of that, you just can't go there because then you're in charge. How good are you at being in charge? <laughs> Let's get Sandra in here and... Uh... <laughs> You're getting it. Yes, that's it. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so to let you in a little more when it comes to this view, um, that this is the covenant of works with Adam comes from covenant theology. Covenant theology says that there are three covenants, main covenants, uh, that cover the whole Bible. None of them are talked about in Scripture. The first is the covenant of redemption that they believe the Father made with the Son before all uh, creation. That the Father and Son entered into a covenant with one another about how they were going to redeem humanity. Not in the Bible. Um, you get some ideas about what was going on before creation in the Bible, but you, know, you don't never get covenant language. The second is the covenant of works. The third is the covenant of grace, which they say was established in Genesis 3. We were just looking at Genesis 3. Perhaps you didn't see the covenant language there. Um, And that the covenant of grace began at that moment. And then all the other covenants, like the covenant with Noah and and all of humanity, the covenant with Abraham, and so on, those are subsets of the covenant of grace. But the covenant of grace is the big one. They're not in the Bible. That's a big problem for me. Okay. Did you have a thought or question there, Dax, a second ago? Okay. All right. Okay. The gentle and lowly, he, yeah, he, I think he mentioned the covenant of redemption at one point. Yeah, yeah. Yep, so that's where that comes from. Not the Bible, but from covenant theology, okay? And on that note, we will pray and dismiss, and we'll pick this up next week, and we'll really get into the details of the Abrahamic covenant next week about what God obligated himself to do, okay? Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for our time tonight. Uh, help us as we try to really understand what it is you've said, that we would submit ourselves to your word, place ourselves under your authority, and that we would hear you speak clearly. Help us to 
uh, hold on and, and to uphold your word as your people, that we would represent you well, and then we would just be defenders of the truth, uh, caring about every word from your mouth, which is more important to us than uh, bread, more important to us than uh, anything else, that we would hear from you and keep your word. God, we love you and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.